Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a podcast helping academics and former academics to find wellness, meaning, purpose, and freedom in life and career. I'm Danielle Delamar. Glad you're here. Hello. How are you all today? Episode 27 is here and In today's episode, I am interviewing Dr. Ashley Wellman, and you are going to love this story. It is so inspiring. This, we're talking about someone who has been through the ultimate in tragedy, and she has managed to turn it around and find this deep, deep well of strength that resides within her. It is absolutely amazing. She is transitioning out of academia at this point, and she tells her story. And she also tells her story about starting her own small business, being a children's author, a children's book author, and she, I got to, I just, I have to read the first part of her book to you. So um, this is just a little teaser. It's called The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno. And first of all, she'll talk about this in the episode. She has these great illustrations um, there. It, it starts out with this little girl lying in bed and there are, you know, creepy little monsters around her sort of under her bed and sort of peering over her bed and she says I used to be afraid of monsters under my bed but now I welcome them and now she's and then there's this other picture of her sitting there around this table with cookies and tea and the monsters are smiling at her and she's smiling at them Um, She says, I've learned that scary things are often just misunderstood. Anyway, that's just the very beginning of this fantastic book that Dr. Ashley Wellman has written. And it is the kind of book that spreads a message that our culture needs a message of acceptance and love and there's even a message of self-compassion in here so this her story is amazing you're going to love it before we get into the interview my self-compassion class for people who are in career transition is starting october 15th when i say it's a class i just want you to know that it's just like a webinar um a weekly one hour webinar for six weeks. And what we do in that webinar is we meditate, we practice self-compassion. I teach you some skills, how to use self-compassion to, to manage, you know, the stress and the anxiety that comes up during career transition. And, and we connect to each other, right? We build community. It, it, it is going to be fantastic. Like I've said in previous episodes, I've done this course in person with faculty before, and it is a, such a beautiful way to connect to peers who are in the same situation you're in. 
And um, when I did it with faculty, it was with overwhelmed faculty. So they were talking a lot about the same stuff that career transitioners are talking about, right? The same overwhelm and stress and fear and anxiety and all that stuff. So um, if you're interested, let me know. Email me at Danielle. D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. So this is Dr. Ashley Wellman, author and instructor for now. I start this interview by asking her what's up with, with the title instructor for now. And this is her answer. The reality is I was an associate tenured professor, which is supposed to be the end all be all of our careers as a, as a, uh, you know, person with a PhD, there's only one path to success, which is that tenure track <laughs> job. Ha ha. <laughs> and, um, and, and we'll go into kind of how I got to, to that point and why I turned away from it. But, um, you know, I wasn't happy as an assistant professor or as an associate professor and, so I took a risk to go to an institution I thought was going to make it better. That's kind of been my pattern. You know, I'm not on this little circular peg trying to fit into a square hole of academia. And so mm. the solution is pick up your family, take them across the country, make your spouse quit their job and your child leave their school so that you can pursue this happiness in the academy. And of course. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's easy. Duh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Pick up and change. So, um, so that is that's I the current institution I'm at. I'm, I'm an instructor. That was not the long term plan. There was a promise of a tenure track position, um, and we'll get into kind of what happened with that promise. But yeah, I, I remember sitting on the kitchen floor crying and telling my husband. I cannot give up this title and go be an instructor. I've worked too hard. My career depends on it. And it took him saying, one, no one knows what that means, Ashley, in reality. <laughs> you know, he's like outside of mm -hmm. academia. No one knows what these titles mean at all. You're Ashley Wellman, PhD. That's what people pay attention to. No one cares if you're an instructor or an adjunct or a, you know, professor. They just don't know what that means outside the walls of academia. And that was the first time I had really heard that, much less had to sit back and say, he's right. I would try to talk to friends about, should I step back and be an instructor on this pursuit to go back to tenure? And everyone's like, I don't get it. <laughs> what, right. does, what does that mean? You know, it's like, so I would tell them, you know, and they still didn't get it. So we have this construct in our head of what success looks like and what our worth is. And I hope to, to talk to you about today how misleading that can be and how how devastating that can be as an academic. Okay, so let's start with, yes, I want to talk about all of that. So let's start with the not being happy as an associate professor. What was going on? So I don't, the honest truth, I don't think I've ever been happy in academia. I think, <laughs> right. Right? Mm -hmm. I, yikes. Um, I think that's probably, <laughs> the, that's probably the most honest answer. Um, in grad school, you know, I was so blessed. I, let me start by this. As negative as I sound, academia has been a blessing for me in so many ways. I'm going to start with this clause. 
I've met okay. the most incredible <laughs> humans. I've had certain colleagues that are like sisters and brothers to me, father mm. figures, mother figures. Um, you know, they're just loyal, amazing humans. And I have met the greatest students who now are like daughters, sons, friends to me and my survivors mm. that I've gotten to research and, and interview with. I would not be the woman I am today without all of those things happening. So I am glad for my past, but looking back, there's a lot of trauma and, and, not so beautiful things associated with that. So that's my clause before I tell people, yes. hey, academia, it's it's not me, it's you. <laughs> mm, okay, yes, hear you. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, in graduate school, I was at a, you know, an R1 uh, large school. I was at the University of Florida. I had gotten a full ride to get my master's and my PhD. And the reality was I wanted to be an FBI agent. I'm a criminologist. I wanted to be an FBI agent. So I lied in my application and said, oh, I want to get my PhD, you know, because it's not a terminal degree there. And I got into it and I fell in love with the research. And I never expected to do that. Uh, my research, I ended up working with the survivors of homicide and the, the families who were left behind in a cold case. And there was something in my heart that said, I've been given this platform to share these really important stories and if I have that gift, who am I to say I'm not going to use it to help these these families? And so I really grew this, this advocacy heart and this mission to say this is my calling to kind of help these families. Eventually, that would turn into to being a sexual assault advocate and working with students on campus and, and those things. So my heart transitioned. And I remember uh, I had just started dating Buddy, who, who I would marry in 2011, and I said, I have this offer to go to a federal law enforcement academy and I'm also interviewing for these professor positions right now. And he said, well, there's two options. You can pursue federal law enforcement where you're going to make a lot of money, but you're not going to be with your family a lot, or you can do academia and be a professor and have more time holidays off, you know, make good money, but, but you're going to get to spend the money with your family and not away from your family. And I wanted to be a mother so bad. I was not at the time. I wanted to be a mother so bad that I said, okay, he's, he's right. But in grad school, I was struggling because I was told things like if you get pregnant or you get married, those are like the curses of all curses in academia, you know, and you do not want to distract from your studies. So family needed to be last priority on your list. And, and I knew immediately, well, that sounds backwards, you know, um, mm -hmm. it, for me, my family, even my imaginary family was always, that's always going to be my priority that I will be a wife and mother and then whatever my career title is going to be. So that was different. Um, there was also, you know, my, my, some of my grad colleagues would say things like, oh, I never watched television and, uh, you know, Wellman <laughs> 2008, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I went, I don't, I, one, I can't cite anybody. I have Google for that. Um, two, I love American Idol. I like, you know, The Bachelor. Is something wrong with me? You know, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. And there were all these rules of, you know, what made a serious academic. And uh, you know, that being in your PhD program for nine years was normal because you could get all these publications and you should be willing to be eighth author on a paper for a professor because, you know, their, their name and that stuff. And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to go get my PhD and get out of here and start my, my family and my career because you can't start your family in grad school. So I'm very thankful for my mentor who I, I gravitated to her because she kind of said, 
I'm going to buck all of that. I admired her. She was an amazing professor, but, but her ultimate thing was she was a mother and a friend and a wife and she loved to cook and she liked to do all of these random things that then she did her job as a professor at an R1 university. Like that was kind of to provide for her family and for her life. And I loved that, but I never saw that. Never saw that. Um, I remember uh, I was, you know, one of the girls and I wasn't um, in the good old boys club. And so I remember when I was applying to my first round of jobs, I had done the OCD type A thing of putting all of my, you know, letters of recommendation requests into a binder. They were by color code and date and everything else a nerd could do to make it as easy as possible. Self-addressed envelopes. Back in the good old days, (laughs) we used to have to mail, you know, like an $80 packet to somebody. And Mm -hmm. um, I remember walking into one of my advisor's offices and I said, is that my binder back there? You know, and he's like, oh shit. (laughs) And he said, I didn't send any of your letters. And I went, well, there goes that, you know? So, so back then, if you had an incomplete application, you couldn't get online and say, oh, I'm missing, you know, two of my recommendations. Back then it was, you hope for the best. And so, um, I had, thank God I had buddy at the time. And he said, you know, Ash, it's okay. It wasn't meant to be, don't worry about it. But it was again, like this slap in the face of like, I wasn't important enough for you to, to literally do some generic letter and put it in an envelope and send it out. So, Mm. That was super frustrating. Um, mm. I did end up at a at a Southern military college. I thought that that was going to be awesome for a girl who was raised by a Marine. I quickly learned being a young female in an institution, especially like that, and someone, you can tell I'm really shy, you know, that <laughs> 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 I had an opinion and I was excited and energetic about, you know, making things happen in our department. It was a very small department. Instantly, uh, one of the older men there became very hostile with me and told me like I needed to keep my mouth shut. I was an assistant professor, those types of things. And being at the point where I was throwing up when I would get home from work because I was so upset by this this what? person. Yeah. And I was, what was I? I was 20, I don't know, 28 years old, 27 years old. We were thinking about having mm. a baby. So guess what my husband did? He said, guess what? We're leaving, right? <laughs> we're we're, get, we're mm. leaving. And it was November, of course, you know, the job market's so weird. November, almost all the, the quote, good jobs are gone. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't care. Get on the computer, apply for some jobs, and let's get out of here. So we did. So I ended up in Missouri. Um, great run of my career. I, I was given the credit I had already achieved. I went in guns a-blazing with excitement and energy and did so many cool things there. I, I checked off like, oh, I won this award. Oh, awards really quick in grad school. I won a, I won a teaching award and I was so proud of myself. And my advisor said, Oh God, that's the kiss of death in academia. It means you're not a serious academic because you're too dedicated to your teaching. And I was like, what is, (laughs) what? Okay. Back fast forward. I didn't care. So again, in Missouri, I, um, you know, I did the thing where I was like, okay, what's next? What should I check off next? What line can I add to my Vita next? And so, you know, like check off that award, check off this award, be the keynote speaker, do this and that. And I remember putting together that tenure packet and there was so much stress and anxiety and worry about this 25 page dossier and this packet I was putting together. And I turn it in, I get the letter that says, congrats, you've gotten tenure. And it was the most horrific letdown (laughs) Uh. ever of like, wait, that was supposed to be like the career changing. I made it moment. And it really meant nothing other than a nice, nice little pay bump. You know, there was nothing there. It was anticlimactic because my whole life I had been fighting for 
tenure, the the holy grail. Like I can just see this little glowing, like, ah, oh, right. And that letter should, I should have mm-hmm. opened it and it should have been like a Willy Wonka golden ticket. And instead it was like, <laughs> uh, okay. You know, it just didn't do anything. Um, I felt that way with my PhD too, yes. getting the getting the dissertation done and, yes. and defending and everything. By, uh, by that okay. time, yeah, your no. insides are so torn up, you just don't even. Care. It's like I don't care. Maybe maybe I don't take Pepto Bismol every morning. That's you know? it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so okay. So so we had moved to Missouri. Um, we were a young couple, you know, and and we had said we're going to start a family. So we we started to try for a baby right when I got to Missouri. I got pregnant right away. Never thought that was going to happen. And instead of that being like (laughs) a really great thing, there was this instant fear. You know, I was in my first year at this new institution and there was this immediate fear of like, oh my God, they're going to be so mad at me that I'm pregnant, Wow, you know? And mind you, I've been told I had to wait until I was far far enough in my career to try. And so, Mm -hmm. um, here I am and I'm scared to tell people I'm pregnant. Sure enough, one of the guys in the department said like, I cannot believe the audacity to get here. And she got pregnant right away, you know, and, and I just remember being like, wow, this is so weird. And fast forward two years, we started to try for baby two. And I thought, okay, it's going to be the same thing. Like we timed it where let's get pregnant in this month. And then I'll have the summer off because it had worked so perfectly the first time. That's and, very academic. Oh my god, it was great. Like I, I think great. academic kids always show up in like May and oh June. Oh my god, Reagan was May fifteenth. Was Reagan? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And yeah. we had said the thing like, oh my god, get the ovulation test. Like you know, do all of this. We had a scientific spreadsheet because I was going to get it in the summer. <laughs> I was going to get that baby in the summer, and then we were going to mm-hmm. have the summer off. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I didn't have yeah, I didn't have maternity leave built up, so I was very smart about it. Um, but. So, so we try again. And at this point, you know, I'm going for tenure. I'm, I'm doing a couple other things that are really stressful. And I, I had thought just very naively it was going to be easy to have another baby. And it wasn't. I miscarried not once, not twice, not three times. I miscarried four times. And uh, back to back to back to back. And mind you, in the mm. meantime, there was an issue of sexual harassment by a guy who had a notorious history of sexual harassment. Um, and when I spoke up, it was like, well, sorry, you know, it is what it is. Um, mm. so there was a stress of that, which is a whole nother story, but there was a stress of that. There's a stress of, um, you know, of work and then trying to balance your, your health to, to get pregnant. And I taught through three of the miscarriages and went and had a DNC, which to remove the baby for another mm. one. I didn't miss mm-hmm. a day of work because my dedication was mm. to the academy. Like I had to make sure no one, no one even knew. I think my dearest friends knew in the department, but I didn't even tell my chair, nothing. I went and literally miscarried in class, went to the hospital after I got out of work. The next time I did a DNC, I said, well, can we do it Tuesday morning? Cause I teach Monday and Wednesday. You know, it's like, <laughs> what, what? That's just my constant question to myself. What are you doing? I, I love that you're bringing this up because this is something that I dealt with too. I had two miscarriages and it was the same thing. Exactly the same thing. It was just, 
Uh, well, well, my my commitment, like you said, is to the institution. Mm-hmm. It's to my job. Mm-hmm. It's to my teaching. I'm just gonna work, 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 and um, yeah, yeah, it, and it, and that stress. No wonder we miss. No wonder, right? And and literally, I'm sitting there because there's like fear and phobia of like, God forbid, someone finds out I'm miscarrying, then I'm really a piece of you know, I'm a waste and I'm a, a liability mm-hmm. again. Oh you know? my god! So I, oh literally, one one of them, I was standing in my classroom with a sweater around my waist praying that the mm. students wouldn't know I was miscarrying because I was like, I don't have anything mm. to do. And you know, like in, in the emotions of literally I'm losing a baby right now and I'm trying to lecture and listen to students complain that, that they had to read too much and that they were, you know, angry that I was keeping them the whole class period and all this stuff. And all I'm thinking is I'm losing a baby right now. So, you know, smile. And Unbelievable. Baby, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So that happens. I get, I get the tenure letter. The, the mess with, you know, stress of, of harassment and stuff like that is there. And my husband said, Ash, guess what? <laughs> His solution, get out. Let's do something else. And he's like, it doesn't even have to be academia, Ashley. You could be a barista at Starbucks and I would be so proud of you. No, no knock to baristas. I like, that's a backup plan for me. But, mm-hmm. but um, he was like, mm-hmm. you could be a barista at Starbucks and, and it would be the greatest life. We could get a tiny home. Like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. I need my wife back. I need you to be happy. Oh, so, so sweet. So, so what I did is I did the same thing. I got online and I had seen that this institution I had always dreamed of being at was hiring. And so I had called um, a couple of them and I said, can I meet you at this conference and sit down with you because I'm really interested in this job. And they said, yeah, sure. You can absolutely meet with us. That tenure job that you're interested in is not available anymore. That tenure track job is not available anymore, but we do have an instructor position. You should meet us for coffee. And I remember, I remember looking at my husband. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm too good for that. Mm, <laughs> no, mm. I'm Instructor. Not, <laughs> I'm not doing that. You know, I said, because I worked so hard to get to where I'm at. I at least need the reassurance and the security insert laughter of a tenure track job, you know? And so mm, I can't mm. do that. And he's like, well, I don't know. You could go talk to them. Like you never know what they know about other institutions or something like that. So I did, I met them for coffee. It went amazing. I loved them, their promises and ideas of like what the future would hold for me had, if I did take the risk and, and go this route was so promising. And it was in a city where there was culture and excitement. I was in a really small city in Missouri. And so for a new baby, that was great. But as the baby got older, I wanted Reagan to have access to theater and, you know, Buddy needed access to other jobs and stuff because it was just the university. So I said, okay, for my family, that is an option. It's, it's a promising option. So I tried for it and um, I came out for the interview thought it was going to go super quick. There was a mess up with the way the job was listed. And so there was a long delay in me getting an answer. And at this point, Buddy and I are committed to being done. So I had run into a, uh, a woman who was hiring for an associate professor at an R1 university. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. We, I loved her. We fell in love with each other over drinks. And she's, she really wanted to hire me for this uh, associate professor at an R1. And I remember telling Buddy, like, this is it. Oh my God, I'm going to be at an R1 university. And he, he was always my sound you know, voice of reason. And he said, is that what you want? is that what you want? Because you've been tenured and you weren't happy and, you know, you love the classroom, but you know, is that what you want? And, and I remember I eventually got the option to choose between this amazing offer as an associate professor with a research uh, lab or this instructor position. 
I remember sitting on the kitchen floor in tears, just wondering which one should I pick, right? Should I go with the one that everyone said means success? And that was so important to me because I was the breadwinner of the family. You know, I was the one who was going to be kind of the the financial provider. And so for, for me, it was practical to pick the Research One University because that was success. That's what I had always been told was success. But Buddy was always my voice of reason. And he said, Ashley you've done that. You've already checked all those boxes. You have quote been successful. We're at the point in our lives where I need you to pick with your heart and I need you to go where you think you're going to be happy. And that's really all it took because then I said, well, I know where I'm going to be happy. It's at the, the, the job where I will be an instructor because there's a path back to success. And there's, there's this promise that I'm going to have this, this next 10 year track job. And I believed it because my Vita was incredible, you know, and it, well, that was vain, but <laughs> I had built a Vita yeah. good enough to, to have an entry level, you know, assistant professor job. And, and I had worked so hard and gotten, you know, recognition and stuff like that. So I said, it, it's, it's the next logical step would be to get the assistant professor job there. So we, so we moved, we moved our entire family. This was Okay. So I just want to clarify yeah. just, uh, okay. So what was going on is that you have this, um, you have this choice mm-hmm. and you end up choosing this, this place that's going to work better for your family. Um, because not because it's an instructor job. I mean, mm-hmm. But because you are going to become a tenure track professor at some point, there is sort of a verbal promise from the institution or from the department that that's what will happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was kind of like, look, not everyone had made that promise, but then I was going to prove to them, right, of my worth. I was going to show them my value when I got there. So by the end of, by the time there was a tenure track job open, I was like, okay, I have this large group that's going to support me with that. And, And by the time you know, I'm there with my colleagues. I love what I do. I love the people I work with. So it's going to be fine. So we do, we move our entire family. Um, and I got to the city we're in now in June. Um, August 12th was the day before I started at my new institution. And um, I'm a napper. And so he said, mommy, you should run upstairs and take a nap. And I did. I went upstairs and within three minutes, I heard glass shatter downstairs. And I called down, you know, as a mom, my default was what broke. And now what do I have to pay for? You know, my paycheck has gotten substantially cut. <laughs> what, what am I going to have to pay for? And um, no one answered me. And so I called down to Buddy and I said, what broke? What, you know, what broke? And he didn't answer. And so I run down these stairs in our condo and he's lying in the hallway seizing. And oh. I run over and I just drop to the floor and grab his body up and he's so cold and he's sweating and his eyes look so scared, but he can't breathe. I can tell he can't breathe. So I'm screaming and I run upstairs and I grab the phone to call 911. And by the time I get downstairs, my four-year-old has come into the hall and her best friend is lying in the middle of the hallway. It looked terrifying. There's glass Uh. everywhere. He had grabbed a picture and pulled it down and shattered it onto the floor. And he his body, he was not conscious, but his body was fighting for air. So he would open his eyes and try to like move and he couldn't breathe. And so I'm hysterical. I can't pay attention to Reagan in the moment. And I call 911 and she's like, you have to calm down. Does he need CPR? Well, I don't, I don't know because he's gasping for air, but I can't tell if he's breathing. So it was just, it was horrific. And oh my God. In, in the time I hear the ambulance and the fire truck pass our house, 
I have to run after them down the street because they miss our house. And they get in, they tell me to get my daughter, my dog away from them. And they tell me to calm down because he has a heartbeat and he's going to be okay if he keeps his heartbeat, that that's the key, right? He cannot lose his heartbeat. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I'm trying to regroup and calm down because my daughter's hysterically, hysterically crying. She's terrified and I'm terrified. So I try to step back and say like, okay, calm down, calm down, calm down. And I start calling every colleague I know in the city because that's all I know here. I don't have any friends here yet. You know, I'm by myself, no family. So I'm calling down the list of the five colleagues that have reached out to me and no one's answering their phone. So I'm like, well, this is not good. So eventually, oh my God. eventually one of them picked up the phone and I said, I need you to come get Reagan now. Um, buddy's seizing and I don't know what's going on. And so they came and picked her up and took her. And then another colleague called me back and I said, I'm on my way to the emergency room, you know, and, and she said she would meet me. So um, anyway, I followed the ambulance and I'm so upset. They have to pull over and get into the car with me and drive me because obviously I wasn't driving um, in a safe way. So we get to the mm. emergency room. Um, I watched for 60 minutes while they tried to do CPR and save his life. And they got him back four times. And every time I was like, you know, buddy, you're so strong. You have two girls who need you. Like, uh, you know, you can't leave me. Um, Reagan needs you. And um, he would come back and then he would, we would lose him again. And so eventually at 4.30 on August 12th, the doctor yelled at me to stop, stop cheering for him to stop it. And she said, Ashley, if he comes back, he's going to be brain dead and you need to stop. Oh my God. And, and I remember being like, stop what? Like, this is just not my life. You know, this is not my life. My, my whole life had focused around providing for my family and making moves for my family and my family's mm. gone. And so they, they announced that he, they pronounced him dead. And I, I, uh, was terrified of where they were taking his body because I didn't want to leave him. And they told me if I would just give them a minute to clean him up, they'd let me come kiss him goodbye. And so I did, I, you know, eventually they brought him to me, cleaned up a little bit. And, um, I, I sat there and I said, I don't know what the hell is happening. You know, like, I don't know what happened and I'm sorry I didn't save you. And I'm all I know to tell uh. you is that I'm going to give your daughter a life she deserves and it's going to be beautiful. And I don't know how that's going to happen without you here, but that is my promise to you. And all I knew was that I'm good at my job, you know, and I'm going to be able to provide mm -hmm. for my baby because that had been my role for the last, you know, what, eight years of my life. And so, um, I went home. I had to tell a four-year-old her best friend and her father was dead. Um, oh, as a, my God. Yep. As a scholar, I had actually studied grief and trauma. And so I didn't know anything I should be doing because I was broken and lost. But I knew I needed to follow my you know, recommendations that came at the end of my articles that said things like, tell Reagan the truth you know, don't sugarcoat mm -hmm. it. He's not on vacation. He's not in heaven or, or he's, he, he is in heaven, but he's not, he's not on vacation. He's not flying around the sky. He didn't go to sleep. He died. And this is, you know, mm -hmm. what happened to his body. And, um, so that was a nightmare. And for the next, um, you know, a couple of nights, it was just the wailing of, of Reagan screaming for her dad and me oh, trying to hold God. it together for that. So this is what I do the next morning. I'm up at school prepping for coverage of my class so I can go to his funeral. Correct. And I was so gung-ho about this new institution that I had already had everything prepped, but I sat there and I typed up like a 14-page week one, day one, class this. This is what needs to be taught. This is the quiz I've created. This is my login for Kahoot. This is my exam. 
and I created this this huge layout because it was something I could control, right? And um, my, I think my brother had taken a, a first first class flight immediately to me, so he was with Reagan. My mom was on her way to be with me, and so I'm at work trying to make sure that I present to them that I'm gonna be okay and I've got this and they can trust me. Here's all my stuff. So I tell one of my colleagues who is still a dear, a dear, amazing human in my life. I told him, I said, I'm going to walk into my class on Monday morning and I'm going to tell them my husband died and I'm going to be back, but I need, you know, some time away. This is who's going to fill in. And he was like, don't do that to those poor kids. (laughs) You know, like you don't need to be in class, but it was, it was my gut to say I'm committed and I'm here. I need them to know that. And so, um, that was, you know, just me trying to control something. And, and he said, we're not going to do that. Um, the original plan was I was going to be gone for four weeks and take time to, to help my daughter and I heal. I'm so blessed that they actually did bereavement leave for me instead, um, kind of unofficial bereavement leave because I didn't have it. And so, um, you know, this, this friend who had said, you're not going in, actually advocated for me to get the semester off. And, and I did. Thank God. So in the meantime, I'm at home in this dark condo where my husband died. Um, Very few people um, that I thought were going to be there were there to support me, you know, and um, but but I had the one friend who was amazing and he would come by and make sure I got out of bed and he'd take me for a glass of wine once in a while. Um, But every day I got up, I got Reagan to school and I was I was in this place where I said, like, nothing's normal. And so this, this dear friend of mine said, he said, write creatively, Ashley, do something, take a break from the heavy stuff that you study and write creatively. And I thought I haven't written creatively or read a book for fun or painted in probably 15 years because of school, you know, like I had been so focused on school. And so I started writing a children's book and then I wrote a teen ghost novel and I started painting and all of this stuff. And I would go up to work because I was in this, this literally this tiny, tiny condo where there's a chalk outline of my husband, you know? So I would go up to work to write with my colleague that was encouraging me to write and I could see colors and I was joyful and I was singing and things. One of my colleagues turned me in for singing Christmas carols because it was unprofessional, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but, but to me, I wanted to be up there and show people I'm okay. You know, like I'm going to be okay. And I might not be working on academic stuff, but I'm here and this is a safe place for me. And this is, you know, like, this is my home. And I thought they were my family. You know, like, that's kind of how I viewed it. Um, So I come back in January and I'm still creative writing, but I'm also the top researcher in the department that year, one of the top teachers. So I had not fallen behind on my work performance. I had just gotten bereavement leave, you know, and tried to take care of my family. So Um, I'm back in the classroom. I taught no complaints, didn't miss a day, even when I had a PTSD episode and I had to go to the bathroom or um, my daughter would tell me her heart was broken because her dad is dead. And then I had to drop her off and, you know, go to work. Um, I did it every day and loved what I was doing and loved my students. And I thought, you know, I really had a great bond with all of my colleagues too. They announced that a tenure track job has been given to our department. And I literally remember leaving that meeting, crying in the bathroom and saying, thank you, God. Three things were promised to my husband when we moved to, to, to where we are. One, I'm going to get our daughter in this performing arts school. I had just done that. Two, I was going to get us a home that we could be proud of. I did that. 
and the third thing was I was going to get this tenure track job for longevity of our family. And I was like, this is it. This is it. Well, then they announced the specialty. It's not my specialty. And I'm like, that's interesting. I'm like, but that's okay because I actually have a really deep history in this subject because that was what my master's thesis was about. I taught the class in grad school. I've written on it recently. So I'm, I'm excited to teach that. That's fine. I teach it in so many of my other classes. I can definitely work that into its own class. So that's no problem. Then I hear the, the search committee that's, that's selected. And anyone who's applying for a job right now in academia and you think that your Vita is what's going to get you that job, don't, do not think that when you don't get a call, it's because you're not valuable or worthy. It's because of the politics and what's prearranged and what's already decided in academia way before you put your Vita in. So you're welcome and I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's not you. Um, so the, the committee gets formed and um, a couple of my really close friends in the department had said like, you know, I requested to be on it and they, they said they didn't need me, whatever. Thought that was a little weird, but one of my, I thought dear friends was on it and another friend was on it. Turns out that dear friend helped campaign against me that I didn't deserve the job and that um, I hadn't been, quote, the woman they fell in love with um, eight months after my husband died. You know, I'm not the woman that they fell in love with. So I had no idea about this. I'm stressing. I'm literally, you know, I'm like, this is my chance to provide for my child. So I'm putting so much effort into it. I'm having nervous breakdowns about, you know, what if God forbid I didn't get this job. And then I'm like, stop. The promise was there. You've proven yourself beyond what you needed. And your Vita speaks for itself. Like, just calm down. Put my put my stuff in. Um, one, of, one of my friends on the, the committee was like, you know, you, you're going to be fine. You're good to go, you know. And then I don't hear anything. And I get a call in my office from my chair, from his office, saying, uh, the pool was so strong, you're not going to be considered for a phone interview. And my heart just fell out. And I was like, this, it was like, it was like, again, like, this is not my life. Like, what? And I said, okay. And he's like, but don't worry. You know, if the pool's not strong, we can come back to it. If, if the, the interviews don't go well, we can come back to the pool. You still have a chance. And in my head, I'm like, no, I don't. No, I don't. You knew I didn't have a chance the moment you, that you got that ad, you know, I didn't have a chance. And I was so brokenhearted. And I said, is there anything else, you know, and, and we hung up the phone and I'll tell you, Danielle, this is going to sound so disgusting, but my grief following that phone call and knowing that I wasn't going to get an interview for this job was worse than the grief when my husband died. And I think for multiple things, I think I, when I kissed Buddy goodbye, there was not a single doubt in my mind. There wasn't a single regret. There wasn't a single ounce of was I loved? Was our marriage good enough? Did he know how much I cared about him and how sacred he was to me? It was the most tragic end to the most gorgeous chapter of my life. You know, and there was, there was peace in that. And, and I had his baby there, you know, and I know that he's like still fighting for me to just to be this ultimate success, you know? So there was a bizarre peace in that I got him and had he shook my hand in 2010 and said, I'm going to die in 2018, I would have done it a million times again. So, so I don't know if that makes sense, but there was like, the heartbreak was tolerable because of the beauty he had given me. And now here's this all that I am left, my motherhood definition has changed because of the miscarriages. And I wanted a, a family of four. That family of four is not only just a family of three, now it's a family of two. And so that's changed. You know, I'm not a wife anymore. The only thing I was, was a scholar, you know, 
And now that's gone. Like now that's gone. And so for the next several months, I started, my mental health went completely out of control. My body hated me. I was vomiting every time we had a faculty meeting. Every time I opened the door, I had to, you know, like say a prayer and, and listen to some happy music and hope that my anxiety would stay in check long enough to, to get to class or whatever. Um, and I was making myself sick as a dog because I was like, what did I do wrong? What else should I have been doing? What could I have done? I shouldn't have said this. I shouldn't have done this. And I am not perfect, Danielle. I, there's multiple things. I'm like, yeah, I wish I hadn't done X, Y, and Z. I wish I had done this. I wish I had kept my creative writing to myself because it eventually came out that, um, oh, one of the girls had said, you know, if you're going to be the next JK Rowling, leave academia so that you don't waste our time. And, and what? Yeah. And in that, in that moment, I said like, okay, well, if I'm JK Rowling, I promise you, I'll tell you. <laughs> and I promise you, I'm going to quit. But, You'll know about uh, yeah, it. I, I probably girl, you're going to be the first to know. Um, but you know, but I was like, what? My writing had not distracted from my production. You know, like I literally had excelled in the worst phase of my life. Work had really been something I threw myself into. So I had done really well. There was resentment about the writing and that if I had been healthy enough to write, I shouldn't have gotten bereavement leave. And there was a uh. comment made that um, everything I had accomplished that year was due to my quote break and that it wasn't to be counted. Wow. Right. Wow. So that bereavement leave. That yeah. Cause that's vacation, what it was. It was a yeah. break. Yeah. yeah that, that vacation that I was on, that was hell <laughs> on earth and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but that was mm. my break so that, that nothing I had done counted. And so, you know, I was in this place of like, these are people, whether we were going to be close friends and family outside of work, these were people that I really respected and I really cared about. And I thought at least tolerated and liked me, but it was so beyond that. Like the divide, it was so bad that I went, I didn't know it was that bad. I wish I had been given the luxury of saying, Hey, Ash, you're pissing us off, <laughs> you know, and, and mm -hmm. let me explain myself because my love for those people and my love for my job is so deep, was so deep. <laughs> mm. And, and, um, the same man who told me I should be writing, uh, was the, the one God bless him had to deal with a lot of my, you know, late night calls and, and I'm falling apart over here kind of conversations. And I kept saying like, if I'm not this, then what am I? If I'm not this, then what am I? Because I wasn't valuable enough for that job. I wasn't worthy enough for that job. So now what? And he said, you get two options, Ash. You can listen to the way other people define you. And it's a very small group of people. Okay. And he's like, not all of us. Cause I have a group of colleagues that are like family to me right now. Um, but he said, you can listen to the way that small group is defining you. Yes. They hurt you. Yes. They've ruined your career. We're all going to admit that. Um, but they're defining you in a way that the narrative is so not the woman that the people who love, you know, that you can either listen to that, or you can start listening to yourself and realize your worth and fight to redefine who you are and listen to the people who love you. You know, he's like, Ashley, everything that you've done, right. Is going to translate to whatever dream you have. You're always going to be Ashley Wellman, PhD, my creativity in the classroom, my love of speaking, my love of helping other people. All of that doesn't have to stop just because that that one path to success shut down, you know? So to mm. me, that path was closed and my life was closed because of that. And then I had to realize that's such baloney. It's such baloney. And it, what, what really hit me was I tried to apply for this uh, grief support job, you know, in those months where I was in a dark place. And I remember taking my 25-page CV 
and trying to put it on a two-page resume. And I was like, mm, our job constitutes, you know, like eight bullet points <laughs> on mm. this resume. They don't care how many publications you have. They don't really care, you know, like where you, none of that matters. And, and trying to put it into a practical resume was so daunting and, and changing my website to be more kind of uh, comprehensive and not just Ashley as the academic, Ashley, the author, Ashley, you know, X, Y, and Z. It was incredibly daunting because I was like, if I'm not this, then what am I? So COVID and my, you know, my dear friend and, and other people who have really cheerleaded around me forced me to say, step back and redefine who you are. And I think that's been the scariest, most exhilarating part of the last few years of my life is saying, I get to write this story. But it's yes. also really scary because I've never read this story before. And I've been mm -hmm. told so many things. Like the only thing of value are these measuring rods of success in academia that translate to nothing outside of academia, right? Like how many publications do you have? Where are they? It doesn't matter if you're in, you know, um, a, a high, highly read magazine or you write a popular press book that'll be read by millions of people you need to make sure you're in these journals that no one reads, you know, and, um, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and God forbid you, you know, you're out in the community and stuff like that. That just really doesn't seem to matter. Um, but for me, I said, that is actually what matters. It is what matters. I have always been dedicated to helping other people. And I've always been passionate about, um, spreading messages that encourage hope and those kinds of things. And so I had to start believing that I was worthy of those same messages and my daughter deserved to see a happy mother. You know, mm, um, mm, my mom said like, mm -hmm. Ash, your, your job is stable. And I said, is it, <laughs> is right. it? And if COVID-19 hasn't shown us anything, we are all dispensable. We are not that valued on a college campus. We are a Absolutely. way to get a tuition check, you know? And, um, I told my mom, I said, mom, I don't care how stable it was, although it's not. I said, my daughter deserves to see a happy mother and a healthy mother because, mm. To her, she doesn't care what my job title is, you know, and she doesn't mm -hmm. care the size of my paycheck. She cares that I'm not sick and I'm not at risk of hurting, you know, like my innards aren't you know, eating me alive so that I'm not here for her either. And I think when I said that, you know, my, my mom's my biggest cheerleader, but she was like, oh, my God, you're right. So I've just had to like reposition who I am. And it's terrifying, but that's where I'm at in my life. <laughs> okay. So I have so many questions. Yes. Um, so the, the first is, how have you started to rewrite your life? Like, what are the things that you do now that you didn't do before? Who are you now that you weren't before? I'm giving myself a lot of grace, which is new for me. Um, oh. I'm very, very hard on myself. And I'm, I wouldn't treat anyone else the way I treat myself sometimes, you know, like mentally. Um, it's always like, oh, you should have done that. Oh, Ashley, that was so stupid. Oh, Ashley, you should have done better at this. And I'm starting to say, you know what, Ash, you're doing pretty darn great. I remember my, my justification to I'm not the woman they had fallen in love with was I can't be apologetic for the woman standing here today because mm. I didn't know she could be as strong and as brave in this face of fear as I have been. I didn't know that I had the strength to save a baby's heart and mind and mine at the same time. Um, so I'm proud of that. And yeah. I'm trying to remind myself, like, Ash, you're, you're bigger than the limited picture you've, you've scripted yourself into, you know? Um, so for me, I'm taking risk on myself, even though I'm that type A overachiever planner, you know, control freak, 
I'm realizing life isn't going to let me control everything, right? I didn't, right. I didn't want to be a single mother. I didn't want to be a widow. I didn't want to be um, in the career state that I'm in right now. But part of me saying, open your eyes, Ash. There's signs that are saying you can do something else and you may actually have to do something else. And so for me, I said, you know what? Every skill that I thought was only applicable in the classroom and in that academy or in the institution, why can't that be something that I do for myself and use those skills to do something I love, which guess what? I fell in love with creative writing. It's been, it started as a way to, to, to survive Buddy's death. Then it became a way for Reagan and I to heal together because she's been very active in that process. And now it's this way to thrive and say, wait, there's other options for me. And if if I take a risk, so you know, my children's book is um, available for pre-order now. It's going to be available in hand in October. Um, I'm so excited. And I opened my own small business to be the distributor and marketer and, and person in charge of that. But I want to take that book and be in schools and sharing with little ones that our differences make us special and that, um, you know, anytime that we're scared of something, that if we truly step back and try to understand it, that it's not scary whatsoever, just like Reagan's best friend, the skeleton. That's what the book's about. It's the girl who dances with skeletons, my friend Fresno. And it's based on this picture that my colleague saw. And he said, your daughter's dancing with a skeleton at age you know, two in that picture. That's scary and beautiful. And she doesn't mm. see the fear that other people see. You know, she sees a friend. And so to me, it's like, whoa, what a what a full circle to my life that, you know what? Yes, other people think it's scary or crazy or different or too weird to be doing. But if, if I look at it and it's beautiful and it's healthy and it's happy for me, or if Reagan wants to be best friends with something that's, you know, a scary object, why is that so weird? It's that people don't understand it or aren't giving us time to understand where we're at. And so for me, sharing that message with kids that you are special because you're different and that when we are different and we're together, we're so much better. And that if you just took time to understand certain situations and, and educate yourself on certain situations, it would be beautiful. So I'm like, I can still teach. I can teach little ones, which how much more powerful does it get? And I can right. still write but I can write things that, sh that bring joy and color to my life. I can still be an advocate for survivors because I can place myself in those situations. So it's all these things we think we have to give up to take a risk on ourselves or redefine ourselves. Um, I don't know if you've been following, but like on so many of our academic sites, so many people are saying, I just got my PhD, COVID's happening. Like I, I have no skills that translate outside of academia. What am I going to do? Mm -hmm. Oh my God, anything you want, anything you want. You didn't get where you are today without being incredibly disciplined, incredibly resilient, incredibly brilliant. Use it in any way that you think is going to fulfill your soul. We're not just deemed for this tenured track job. And that's what defines us as successful. It's we have to say what makes us successful. And for me, it's health and happiness and being a, a source of resilience and encouragement for my daughter and being a light for the people who want it to be, you know, who want to share my light with me and those who don't, then I guess you don't get to have it. And if I'm JK Rowling, I'll come sign a book for you. You know, I don't, I don't know. This whole story has been so powerful, but I, I want to just take a second and pause with what you just said, right? Like it's okay to 
not live the life that everybody else mm-hmm. thinks you should. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to be bigger than you've ever believed you were. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to give yourself grace. Uh, like, And to do it scared, Danielle. Do it mm-hmm. scared. I'm terrified because in the back of my head, I still hear so many colleagues that I respect and so many people that have trained me saying, oh my God, poor thing. That person didn't get a tenure track job. Uh-oh, they're in the industry, you know? We're told that. So, yeah. you know, you've got to say, you know what? I hear it. I hear you. It's like, it's like a beautiful mind where he still sees the people over in the corner, but he says, I see them and I hear them, but I know they're not real, you know? Mm. And he Mm. has to live his life knowing that those voices are Mm. not real, even though they're there. They're not real. We're valuable human beings just by being a human being. And so it's like now dig deep and say, what is it you want? And then believe you're worth doing it regardless of what we've been told. That's like, that's the only thing that pushes me forward is I didn't get where I'm at by accident. And now I deserve the chance to say what makes me healthy and happy. And it doesn't have to be that one prescribed job. Amen. (laughs) Preach. (laughs) Yes, preach. (laughs) I want to know then, and I think I know after what you just said, uh, I want to know how you are getting through this time still as an instructor. Because this is something that you're not going to stay in. Um, it's not, it's so, not yeah. a long-term goal because I think my heart um, has done it. And I think that um, my health d- demands something different. And I never anticipated that. But but I think it's fair to give myself that break. Um, the way I'm getting through being an instructor is I love it. I do love it. That's part of the fear of walking away. I love my job. Um, I'm never going to I'm never gonna regret a moment I was in the classroom with with. I call them kids, which is wrong, with students who have changed my life equally the way I've changed theirs. I have been moved and had experiences and learned about humanity and race and religion and things from my students because they were just themselves. And I'm a better woman because of that. I have colleagues who are always going to be my family. I have colleagues around the country who, when Buddy died, came and gave up weeks at work and stayed with me. I mean, that's family. Um, my survivors, like I said, I'll always, um, want to be doing my research and working with them. So I'm doing what I love right now. Life has just told me it's not the long-term plan and I'm the one who's having to adjust to that. So, um, again, I have no, no regrets about, um, the job. I wish I had known some of the myths early on so I could have given myself more grace and, you know, not felt the, the, personal pressures and and heartbreak of like, what's wrong with me? It's not me. It's you academia. Um, (laughs) you know, but, but it's like, I don't regret a moment and I will, I will be blessed every moment I get to be with, with students in the classroom, whether it's in the institution, whether it's in an elementary school, whatever it is to me, that is sharing knowledge. That's what our job was supposed to be about. And you know, that's, that's not what it always ends up being. Um, but yeah, I'm getting through it by embracing and loving the moments I do have with precious human beings. And when that clock expires, whether it's next semester, or two years from now, whatever, I look back and I say, wow, I did that. I am forever. Audrey Hepburn said, like, you can never be overdressed or overeducated. Well, like, here I am. I'm Dr. Ashley Wellman forever. I've accomplished things that I never knew I could, but there's so much more I want to tackle. So I'm just, you know, saying, hey, permission to turn the page and literally rewrite my own story. 
so so beautiful so good so good so good i gotta tell you i've been hiding my tears from like i'm kind of like backing away from the microphone no No, you have made me smile the last little while you have absolutely made me smile and it has and i've had tears of joy but um i've also obviously been listening to your story and it's been a lot of a lot of tough stuff too i've had some sad tears too so i Thank you for sharing this. I, I have. Oh, can I share with your so listeners grateful. a reason to smile yes. about Fresno? Let me tell them yes. about Fresno. Um, so as a fellow academic or recovering academic, I would love your readers to, to um, embrace this, this new adventure of mine. Um, my book, The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno, is available now. It's um, And you can get it at www.myfriendfresno.com. Um, Danielle has a special code for listeners so that they can save an additional 20%. So we'll share that. And um, also, the, the whole thing with, with My Friend Fresno is that it really is just about loving yourself and embracing others who might be on a different path or might be a little bit different. And you know what? For all of us listening to this podcast, that's who we are. So I'm thankful I got embraced on this this podcast. I'm really excited about this adventure with Fresno, and I could not be more thankful to share my story with you. Okay. I have one last question. Ask I know it. we're running out of time, but I need to know about Reagan's oh. co-authorship, yes. right? Because she was the co-author on this. Well, okay. Yes. And I've got a shout out about my illustrator who's also phenomenal. I wouldn't be where I'm at without him. Reagan mm. is my my muse. I'd call her my muse more than my, my co-author. Um, she inspired the book with her best friend. And Reagan's my go-to when I have writer's block. Um, whether it was the teen ghost book, which is way inappropriate for her age, <laughs> she's only six, or okay. um, or Fresno, I would always say like, hey, Reagan, I'm at this point, like, um, you know, these people are on a quest for X, Y, and Z. What should they do next? It was like a choose your own adventure book, you know, and she would tell me, oh, if it was me, I would do this. So then I would write that way. With Fresno, this first book, it's it's actually the first of three books that we already have written that we're working to publish. But this first one is about Reagan's friendship with him and finding the beauty in the differences that they share and why he makes such a beautiful friend, even though he's scary. Um, and so I would ask Reagan, like, hey, Reagan, what what would you be doing with Fresno right now? Or what do you wish you could do with Fresno? Why is he special? And so she really kind of did the um, autobi- you know, a biography of her of her best friend for me. And then I took that and turned it into the book. And as as great as I think the writing is, you know, I'm I'm edgied up on J.K. Rowling, right? Um, as <laughs> the, the, the writing's precious and the story I think is precious, but the illustrations, if you know who Thomas Kincaid is, the painter of light, his mm-hmm. nephew is my illustrator, Zach Kincaid. And he is like the next generation of Kincaid because his art is so unique and so beautiful. And every moment you turn the page, like my grin gets bigger and bigger. Um, I'm smiling so big just looking at the picture right now. Um, every picture is dynamic and funny and quirky, and it has little built-in kind of nuances in it, so much detail. Um, so when you're when people buy the book, it's not just this amazing lesson, but the parents and kids are going to see these pieces of art. That's literally what it is. He told me, Ash, I'm not an illustrator. I'm an artist. And I said, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> that's mm. why I picked you. So um, very cool book. Reagan, Reagan is 
more of my um, chief creative officer than anything else. She tells everyone in the store that they need to buy our book. Um, she asks them if they have kids and she's like, good, we have this book and a plush doll you need. Um, you know, <laughs> my mom just made puzzles. You should buy them for your kids. So, you know, I look at him, I'm like, you don't have to, but here's the website in case you want to. Um, mm. <laughs> but so again, it's myfriendfresno.com. It is. Yep. www.myfriendfresno.com. Okay. okay. And so if people wanted to go there and buy the book, you have a, a code. Yep. Um, and be, what what did we decide it was? <laughs> and I'll check, but it's going to be S. C prof. So S C prof 20 S C prof 20 for self-compassionate professor. Yes. And then throw that 20 on the end of it. And that's going to save you an additional 20% during the pre-order. Some prices are already slashed or, um, you know, later on in the year, it'll just be an additional 20% off. Ashley, you're the best. Thank Thank you you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for giving me a free therapy session, Danielle. (laughs) (laughs) It is therapeutic. I know that it is. I've been through it. It's great. You're so welcome. So good. Um, And there are just so many lessons in there that you have had to learn the hard way. And I just appreciate you teaching those lessons to people who haven't had to learn quite this hard way. Um, right. Like, like it's going to be a little easier for them now that they've heard your story. So I thank hope so. you. Of course, believe in yourself. You're worth more than you know, and it's not defined by the way academia has defined it for you. You are worthy just the way you are. Mm. And I know people are going to want to reach out to you because, <laughs> because your story is just, um, so beautiful and, and, and heartbreaking and all the stuff um, that that human life is made of. Uh, so will you tell us how people can get in touch with you? What's the best way yeah, if they do want to contact you? Let's do my long-term email, which is going to be myfriendfresno at gmail.com. Yay. Okay. Thanks again, Ashley. You're so welcome. Thanks, Danielle. And I hope all your listeners have a blessed day. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me today on Self-Compassionate Professor. I'm Danielle Delamar, wishing you a wonderful day and much happiness, health, and peace. Take care.